Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning, good morning. Um, hope you're all doing well this morning. I would be remiss if I didn't mention... Um, before we even get started this morning, the National, uh, National Council of Investigating Security Services conference that starts on Monday um, in Washington, D.C. Well, it's actually it's being held in Alexandria, Virginia, but everybody is planning on getting the hill, as we say, to visit our representatives, our Congress people, and our senators, and talk to them about issues that we have uh, with bills concerning private security and private investigations. So that starts Monday. Washington, D.C., um, and Alexandria, and if you're interested in attending at the last minute, you can do that. Uh, just go to www.nciss.org. Okay, so today, I have, we have a really interesting guest today. Michael Miranda, he's an accredited accident reconstructionist. He's from Colorado. We just found out that uh, we, that we lived... Uh, probably about 12 miles apart for a period of time. So I'm happy to introduce you to Michael Miranda. Hi, Mike. Hi there. Thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. So, um, you know, accident reconstruction, is such, that's such an interesting area. Give me some of your background, would you, and tell us how you got to what you're doing now from where you came from. Well, I started with the Colorado State Patrol back in 1979, uh, I was actually going to college, and one of my study mates was dating the local recruiter for the State Patrol, and she had mentioned that they were looking for troopers for a new, a new class that was going to be starting. So after uh, talking uh-huh. with him, he convinced me to take the test, and I kept passing the test, and next thing you know, I'm walking into the academy. <laughs> and, and where were you living at the time? I was living in Pueblo, which is about 45 miles south of where I'm at now. Correct, yeah. Okay, and so uh, did you grow up in Pueblo? Uh, yes, I did. Born and raised there. Okay. All right. And then where did you go to the uh, Highway Patrol Academy? It was up in Golden, just outside of Denver. Uh-huh. Is that where they have a regular academy? Yes. Okay. Okay. So then what happened after that? Well, I, uh, when I graduated from the academy, I was stationed in La Junta, which was just outside of uh, where you used to live. Uh, right. While I was there, <laughs> Literally 12 miles. <laughs> yeah, 12 miles. Yeah, 12 miles. While I was working on the patrol, I, I developed an interest in the accident investigation, which was our primary function. So I started taking uh, advanced, advanced classes, uh, continue to take classes, develop my skills, uh, join the State Patrol's accident team, uh, which handled major traffic accidents. And then about 1993, I believe it was, 94, I transferred to the Colorado Springs area 
where I spent the rest of my time until I retired in 2008. And during that time, I had received uh, training in various aspects of accident investigation. I became accredited with the Accreditation Commission for Traffic Accident Reconstructionists, uh, that's commonly referred to as ACTAR. And then when I retired, uh, started my own business, performing accident reconstructions in the private sector. And so you're also a private investigator. Uh, yes, I am. I'm licensed through the state of Colorado as a private investigator. The new licensing that's only been in effect about three years now. The mandatory licensing, yes. Uh, previously, they had a voluntary license program that lasted only a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how, and how is the licensing scheme working there for you now? Is it working? It, it seems... Yeah, it seems to be working quite well. It's uh, helped uh, give a, a level of professionalism to private investigators in Colorado. I think we're Absolutely. being viewed more as a profession rather than you know, what you see on TV. Right. It was a hard-fought hard battle, for sure. It went on for many, many years. But uh, yes. I'm glad you, it was finally accomplished. It's great, and I'm glad you're uh, a licensed private investigator as well. So, uh, Mike, what are the biggest challenges that a highway patrol officer has? Probably the biggest challenge would be the fact that uh, you're oftentimes, depending, of course, on where you're stationed at, uh, you're by yourself. You're out there mm-hmm. and you have uh, two, three counties uh, that you're the only trooper that's working the area. So many times you have to handle things all by yourself because the closest help is sometimes 40 minutes away. Right. So how do you protect yourself? Because you're, you're approaching cars. You have absolutely no idea who that person is that's driving. You have to be just extra vigilant. You have to make sure that you keep your eyes open, that you're paying 100% attention to what's going on around you and watch for any signs that, that there may be a potential problem. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like your life was at risk, immediate danger? Oh, yes, yes, several times. Uh, you just have several to times. Kind of just, yeah, just kind of keep, keep that in the back of your mind, constantly go through scenarios of what can happen and what you need to do, and then you need to keep yourself trained in uh, proper self-defense techniques as well as keep yourself physically fit so that you can handle any challenge. So what techniques do you use? I mean, I'm, I'm sure um, highway patrol officers must be taught a lot of conflict kind of management techniques. So how, what kind uh, of you, techniques do you use to get the person to maybe relax and uh, you joke around with them? How do you, how do you handle that? Well, you, you, first you have to try to determine what kind of person you're dealing with. Uh, sometimes when you joke around with a, a person, it just increases their anger. So you have mm-hmm. to be able to learn how to read people and then develop right. your techniques on how, how you work with them. Okay, so t- tell me how, how a typical approach would be. Uh, the, the state troopers are, are taught various techniques. Uh, and then we have to practice them and be recertified them on a uh, 
frequent basis so that you keep your skills up. And the skills physically can be anywhere from using strong verbal commands to using secondary weapons like a, a baton or pepper spray. Or they have uh, tasers now that they can use. Mm-hmm. And so um, when you first approach a car, what, what, what are you taught that is the first thing you say to the person, the driver? Well, I always introduced myself. I uh, really didn't even say, say my name. Sometimes I did introduce myself to my name, but I introduced myself of who I was, why I stopped them so that they knew what was going on, and then, uh-huh. um, then asked them for their information. Something like, did you know you were going uh, 40 miles over to see <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, usually I would say, you know, good morning. Uh, you know, the reason I stopped you is because I clocked you speeding. Mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. see where it progresses from there. Right, right. Yeah, it's always been interesting. I, I, said, um, I said offline when we started that I, I had my own story about a highway patrol and I was learning to drive. And you know the road 20 that I mentioned. And I was, my mother was in the car and we're driving out of, the, uh, out of road 20 onto the highway, on the highway 50, which you know well as, as for sure. And uh, we got stopped by highway patrol because I was not licensed. <laughs> and he could tell I was not licensed because I looked like I was about 12 and I was driving. <laughs> so, but it was all good. I mean, it just so happened that we knew the highway patrol officer and he, you know, he gave us a break that time, but uh, we want to do it again. And areas like that, you kind of get to know a lot of the people, especially the people who have lived there for a long time. Right, right, exactly. So, um, so you developed this um, really kind of rare specialty of accident reconstruction. So, tell us about that. What what's involved in accident reconstruction? Well, accident reconstruction basically takes it uh, an investigation of a traffic accident beyond the normal stages. Uh, the normal stages of an investigation usually involve identifying people, vehicles, the basics of where they were going and what happened to cause the collision. Accident reconstructions dig deeper into that. They start looking at various causes or or contributing factors to an accident. Uh, A reconstructionist not only looks at the basic scene, but they look at everything around the scene. Is there anything that could have contributed to one person or another doing what they did. Then we look into human factors, what's going on with the individuals. Mm -hmm. We look into Mm -hmm. environmental factors like weather, uh, road conditions. And then we look into mechanical, dealing with with the cars. And then we try to put this all together and come up with what happened, how it happened, and why it happened. And that can include... uh, Many times, speed calculations, trying to figure out who was going, what speed, and how that contributed to an accident. Interesting. So, uh, are you, and are you trying to determine fault typically? Uh, I handle pretty much anything from uh, what's called careless driving all the way up to vehicular homicides. 
Uh, careless driving, okay. usually there's no uh, contributing factors that deal with uh, like alcohol or recklessness. And then when you get uh-huh. into vehicular assault, you're dealing more with accidents that are caused by somebody who has been drinking or has on drugs or there's high speed or other reckless driving that is involved in it. So uh, who hires you? I typically get hired by uh, attorneys. Uh, the attorneys who are, are, are defense attorneys. Also, there are mm-hmm. attorneys that are hired by an individual who's been involved in an accident, and the insurance company is uh, not willing to, to work with them. Okay. All right. So, so how often do you work with an insurance company? Uh, not very often. Uh, I maybe get one case a year where the insurance company is actually taking care of everything. And what, give me a scenario that, that would exist with an insurance company. That's, uh, um, new to me. So give me a scenario on that. Uh, a recent case that I worked with for an insurance company is that, uh, they, uh, were insuring a trucking company that was involved uh-huh. in a, a double fatality out on the eastern plains of Colorado. And so the insurance company hired me to review the investigation that was done and then to gather additional information as part of the investigation uh, to uh-huh. see if there was any, anything that their client could have done or, could, or uh, didn't do that would have contributed to the accident. Okay. And how, how did that one come out? Oh, uh, that's still pending. Oh, it is? Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, sometimes these will take several years before they're all the way done. Okay. What's been your most interesting uh, accident re- reconstruction case? Well, let me see here. Probably the most interesting one that I had while I was a trooper, um, we had a rollover accident that involved a fatality with an individual pinned underneath the car. And uh, mm-hmm. after everything was done on scene, the coroner come out had pronounced the individual deceased. Uh, we did all, everything that we needed to do, so we flipped the car over so that we could get the car out of there and recover the individual. And once we flipped the car over, the individual started breathing again. Oh, my goodness. So that was uh, kind of a shock. (laughs) I'll bet. And did that person live? Yes, they lived and fully recovered and went on to live the rest of their life as far as I know. Oh, wow. And Now, in the private sector, probably... I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. What was it? What you're saying. I want to say in the private sector, probably the most interesting one I had involved a, uh, a delivery van for a large company that delivers packages that was involved in a uh, fatality where the individual pulled out from a stop sign and then got get broadside by another car. Um, after going through all the information, we did a recreation of, of the accident and once we were done, I'm sorry. And once we were done with all the, uh, <clears throat> pardon me. Once we were done with all of our investigations, 
then uh, we determined that the, the car was traveling so fast that it was totally out of view of the delivery driver before they pulled away from the stop sign. Hmm. Okay. So go on. So with that, there was also several other factors. We determined that the driver of the uh, vehicle was under the influence of an illegal drug. Uh, Not only were they speedy, they had mechanical issues with their car. So there was a lot of things that led to the point that the driver of the delivery truck, there was no way they could have seen that car. So when Mm -hmm. they pulled out, they pulled out with the impression that it was safe to do so. And then all of a sudden the car was there. Right. Mainly because of the speed, I guess. Because of the speed, that there were no headlights on at night. There's various things that we looked at. And again, this goes back to we looked at all of the factors, human factors, environmental factors, mechanical factors. Okay. This is a good, uh, real good place to take a break. Mike, let's be right back uh, with Mike Miranda, Michael Miranda, uh, with uh, MJ Investigations, talking about accident reconstruction. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Back with Michael Miranda, an accident with instructionist. And we were just talking about um, the kinds of accidents that he's been involved in, um, the most unusual ones. And, Mike, you mentioned human factors. Talk about that. What are human factors? Well, human factors deal with uh, what the individuals in the vehicles are feeling and experiencing. Uh, as part of a reconstruction, we, we look at not only... Um, things like alcohol or drug consumption, and the drug consumption also includes prescription drugs, we also kind of look at the background of the person. What are they experiencing? Um, Have they had something happen in their life that has made them extremely angry or upset, Mm. something that would take their attention away from their driving? Uh, Are they distracted inside the vehicle? Do they have passengers in the car that are, are keeping them distracted? Uh, sometimes even children in the vehicle that are acting up will distract a driver. Uh, are they talking on the phone? Are they texting? You know, we look at all these different factors as what is going on with the individual who's driving the car as well as the other people in the car. Okay. All right. And as part of that, you look at uh, uh, eyesight and lighting and that part, is that part of human factors? Uh, yes, it, it can be, uh, especially when you you look at the individual and uh, they're wearing thick glasses or you see glasses in some of the photographs that the police have taken. Do they need these mm-hmm. glasses to drive? Can they see well without them? Uh, the elderly, of course, have problems seeing at night. Uh, they're more susceptible to uh, glare at night from other vehicles or street lights or even lighting from businesses. So you look at some of these as a possibility of, of something that affected their ability to see. Okay. All right. And so that's, that's really interesting. And because um, I understood at one time there were people that were experts just in human factors. Have you run across that? Uh, in research papers, uh, some of the blogs that I, I belong to and read, there are individuals out there that that's, that's all they study. They specialize in that section. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then um, the other thing, you, you mentioned mechanical factors. So when you are uh, evaluating a vehicle, what are the steps you go through, uh, like kind of like from beginning to end, to make sure you cover everything? Well, I start with a, just a basic walk around, uh, looking for anything that's obvious, like ball tires, for example, or a broken shock. And then if there's something that's broken, you look at it to see if it might have possibly been connected with the forces of the impact, or if it's just rusted over in something that has broken in the past and just hanging there prior to the accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just kind of go through and just look at the vehicle, see if anything just really jumps out at you. And sometimes you have to crawl around underneath, look around, take pictures, review them. And there have been times where, uh, because I'm not a mechanic, that I have recommended a certified mechanic inspects the vehicle. And then okay. they will come out and they will 
really dig into it and tear into it, and then they can tell you, yes, this brake was frozen, it's locked up, the braking system's not working. Okay. That, you know, that makes a lot of sense, because, and then, um, I guess, at some point, if you, if this case went to court, that mechanic would come and testify as well. Yes. They, they come in and they, they talk about the technical aspects and the things that, uh, that I see, uh, for example, like a headlight, I can, I can pull a headlight and inspect it, and there's certain characteristics that light bulbs on a car will exhibit if they were on during an impact or off during the impact. I had enough training and enough experience in examining these that I could testify to that. But it has to do, uh-huh. like, with I the see. braking system, then a mechanic would have to do that. Okay. Okay. So, um, what are the kinds of things you... So, obviously, you look at, for bra- at brakes, you look at headlights. Um, what are the kinds of things would you look at on the vehicle itself? Oh, well, you would look at the steering mechanism. Is there something wrong with the steering box? Uh, the shocks? Are there... Are there problems with the shocks or anything that might help stabilize the vehicle as it's driving down the road? Uh, you look at the uh-huh. tires. Are they bald? The tire tires. Did this accident happen during the rain? All right. You just, you, just huh. try to, you just try to, you look at what happened in the accident and then you stand back and say, okay, what could have contributed to this? What could have caused car A to do this? And you've probably gotten to the point where you can look at an accident and determine, not with certainty, but determine pro- the probability of what happened. Yes, I'll look at it and I'll say, okay, just based on a quick overview, this is what I think happens. And then I dig into the accident and I basically try to disprove myself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now... You talked about this uh, uh, certification. Tell, tell us about the uh, ACTAR certification. What goes into that? Well, ACTAR is a, an association that has uh, members from uh, across the world. I believe the last count was like 16 different nations uh, across the, the globe. And mm-hmm. it uh, starts off with, the, of course, the application process. You have to have a, a certain amount of training and experience before they even let you take the test. Now, the test is an eight-hour test. It involves uh, theory. They sit you down, give you the test papers, and the first four hours is explaining the theory of accident investigations. And, and what is that? Theory? What is that? Every, I'm sorry, ma'am? What is that? What is theory? What is, what is that involved? Oh, it involves a lot of things we, we just discussed. Uh, human factors. What are human factors to look into? Mechanical, environmental factors. Uh, what are some of the different signs that you're going to see uh, in a car? Identifying different pieces of evidence like uh, what's known as a spider web on a windshield. What is a spider web? What does it indicate? What are skid marks? What kind of skid marks? What kind of formula would you use for these skid marks? And then the second half of the test is uh, they provide you a packet of information for an accident, and you have to reconstruct the accident by hand. You can't use computers, so you can't take any shortcuts. You just you have to draw out the accident, determine angles, weights, all the different factors that you need, 
and then you have to answer, I believe it was like 30 or 40 questions dealing with that reconstruction. Sounds like high stress. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was. It's one of the hardest tests I've ever taken. And yeah, then every, sounds like it. Every, and every five years, you have to be recertified. And recertification ah. can be, you can either take the test again, or you have to attain uh, 80 credit hours of training from classes, either classes that you teach or classes that you attend, or from conferences that you have to go to during that five-year period. Interesting. So uh, you've taught at a, a number of uh, Colorado conferences, I think, on your website. Uh, this is the PPIAC, the, uh, what does that stand for? That's the Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado. Yeah, very, very good private investigation association. You talked, you taught several times at their conferences over the past few years. Uh, yes, I've given presentations on uh, what accident investigation is, what it entails, uh, talking about many of the things that we've discussed, and also what, as private investigators, they can do to provide a better accident investigation for their clients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And. What kind of questions do you get from other private investigators about what you do? Uh, most of the time it has to deal with what kind of skid marks uh, that they're seeing. Can we develop a speed computation from those skid marks? I get questions on um, a lot on airbags or seatbelt usage. Uh, a real big topic that's, that I'm seeing a lot now is the event data recorders which is basically your black box inside of a car. Your black box, uh-huh, uh-huh. What does that information mean? Well, what does that information mean? Well, most cars have these black boxes, and they initially started off as a tool for the engineers, for the manufacturers to use to make the cars safer. And now that they are becoming available for reconstructionists to use, you can pull out a lot of information off of these, like whether the seatbelts were on or not, whether they pressed on their brakes prior to an impact. Uh, you can develop uh, speeds off of the information that you can use to validate the speeds that you come up from other methods. Uh, it'll tell you whether the throttle was being pressed and how much throttle was in it. RPMs, uh, there's just a lot of information, and each manufacturer has uh, different criteria for the information that is recorded on these devices. So, um, so I, I'm having trouble since I've never seen a black box. I'm having trouble visualizing. So, where is it located, and what does it look like? It's actually a, a little silver box uh, on most cars, and it's located. Uh, they try to put it close to the center of mass of the vehicle. So that okay. way it can record the changes in velocity. So it could be underneath a seat, could be on the transmission hump, could be underneath the dash right about the transmission. So it's usually somewhere in that front part of the car. Okay. And what kind of hoops um, might you have to jump through to get to that black box? Who has to give you authority and uh, how do you actually access it? The black box information is usually accessed 
through a, a search warrant. If you're in law enforcement, they have to get a, a search warrant for that specific vehicle before they can do it. In the private mm-hmm. sector, uh, we just need a uh, release from the owner of the vehicle. Okay. All right. And is it easy, is it easy to access? Can you pull it out? Uh, sometimes it's very easy to access. Uh, many of them can be accessed to the diagnostic port that's inside the car. So you just take the instrumentation that you have, plug it into the diagnostic report, and then it'll download all the information. Sometimes if there's a lot of damage to the car, it has to actually be removed from the car, and then what's known as a desktop download has to be done. Okay. And uh, and then when were black boxes first uh, installed in cars? It hasn't, that hasn't been done forever. When did they first start doing that? Uh, if I remember right, some of the first ones were done in the 70s. Uh, they were usually the high-end cars like Mercedes or Cadillacs. And then uh-huh. they became more common as time has gone along. Uh, right now, virtually every single car has one in it. Regardless of the, the automobile maker, they all have them. Uh, pretty much, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, and is that worldwide? I mean, is it, does every vehicle manufactured in every country have those black boxes? I believe it's required for everyone that's manufactured for import or to be used in the United States. Now, whether mm-hmm. uh, a car in Saudi Arabia, for example, that's made there has them, that I'm not sure. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So um, when you talk to other private investigators, because, you know, a lot of our audience, we have other people that listen to this show, but when you talk to private investigators, what kinds of things do you want them to know? If they get a case that possibly involves involves an accident, what do you want them to know and what do you want them to ask? Well, usually the first thing that I'll tell them is that they need to make sure they have all of the information. Uh, Many times uh, a member of a a private investigation firm or law firm, they'll ask the the investigating agency for the accident report. And that's all they're going to get is the two or three page Mm -hmm. accident report. So they need to make sure they ask for everything that is associated with that report. Because many times they'll have witness statements, there'll be radio logs that have uh, information as to people who saw the accident and called it in on a 911 tape, for example. There's Mm -hmm. uh, inspections of the vehicles, speed calculations, measurements. There's just a lot of information that is done during a police investigation that unless you ask for it, you're not going to get it. So that's usually the first thing I tell them to get, including photographs. And some of those things are time-sensitive. If you don't ask for them right away, they're not preserved, like the 911 calls, for example. Correct. Uh, And then some of them are going to be hard to get if there's a criminal case going on and you're working on the civil side. Uh, They won't release Mm -hmm. a lot of this information, so the case has been adjudicated. That makes it really tough because it could take years before the case to go to court. How do you work around that? Uh, You basically do the best that you can. (laughs) 
You know, you get whatever, <laughs> okay. whatever information they will give you, and then you try to find out whether the client is represented on the criminal side, and then you ask the criminal attorney, can you order these for me? And, and I've had okay. real good luck with that. Okay. Because you're working on, essentially, in those cases, you're working on behalf of the defendant anyway. Correct. Yeah. You're not working for the person that he hit or killed. <laughs> that wouldn't right. work out very well. Okay, interesting. So um, back to the um, the certification you get. Um, do do most people that get involved in accident reconstruction as an expert are they certified by ACTOR? Is that something private investigators and attorneys should be concerned about? Uh, I would say probably about 40% of the reconstructionists you see out there are ACTAR accredited. Uh, it's not uh-huh. something that they normally do, but it is something that I highly recommend. It, it's much like licensing. It shows a, a level of professionalism. It shows that you have taken uh-huh. the necessary steps, both in training as well as testing and review by your peers uh, to become recognized as a reconstructionist. Otherwise, anybody could hang out a single and say they were one, right? And uh, not know what they're doing. You see that a lot. You actually see that a lot. There's a, there's a lot of people out there who have very minimal training, but uh, represent themselves as reconstructionists because they've investigated a couple of accidents in the past. You know, Mike, that's probably the most important thing that uh, you being on the show lets people know is that if they have a case, attorneys, private clients, investigators, if they have a case where there's an accident and you need to evaluate to find out what the cause of that accident is, you better get somebody that's ACTAR uh, trained and certified. Let's take a break. Yeah. We'll be right back. This Mike Landa. Thank you. News. Your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm back here with Michael Miranda, accredited accident reconstructionist. And joining us is a caller from Colorado, uh, caller, would you introduce yourself, please? Uh, I am Ryan Johnson. I'm actually the president of PPIC in Colorado, and I've known Mike Miranda for many years and would say that he is the consummate professional when it comes to these uh, types of investigations. Uh, but also I have a question for him. Great. Go, go for it. Uh, Mike, talk about when you actually become involved in an investigation. I would assume ideally, you know, while the vehicles are still parked on the road would be the best time for you to become involved in the investigation, get out there right away. But I I also assume that that's probably doesn't happen very often and you're probably brought in after the fact. But uh, talk about, you know, when the usual is when you're become involved in the case and, and what difficulties it may present, you know, if you're brought in too late after the fact. Well, of course, Ryan, first let me tell you, thank you very much for the vote of confidence there. I do appreciate that. And, and you're correct. It is best if you can get out there as soon after the accident has happened. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, typically, everything's been cleaned up. Everything's all gone away. Several weeks, months later, the individuals retain an attorney or from talking to other people, they finally decide, well, I need a reconstructionist in this. And then that can go on actually for several months. And it could be months, sometimes even years later, they give me a call say, we need you to reconstruct this accident. And that does present the problems because many times there's information on the roadway or on the vehicles that was not recognized as being an important piece of evidence by an investigating officer and that information is gone by the time I get it. Yeah, that's that's what I would assume. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of factors. Uh, I'm guessing a year down the road you could see roads that have been repaved and all sorts of things that could throw a wrench into your investigation. Oh, absolutely. They've been repaved. They've been rerouted. Uh, sometimes they're even gone. They've been destroyed. Well, Mike, I how, appreciate your show. How, don't leave us, Ryan. Don't leave. Okay. Uh, Mike, how often are the photographs you get from the crime scene um, work for you in evaluating what went on? Are they, in, are they 
good quality or are they, do they have problems? Uh, I would have to say, unfortunately, there's problems. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like many times, and, and this is one of the things when I t- teach classes that I always stress, they don't know how to use the camera. Uh, so pictures are out of focus, uh, they're blurred, they're washed out because of lights, or they don't take enough photographs. Uh, I've had cases involving fatalities where I get maybe six photographs. And That's something like that, you should have, uh, I'll, I'll sometimes when I go off a follow-up, we'll take over 100 photographs. They need to mm-hmm. photograph more of the scene. You know what I see, Mike, and maybe Ryan, you would see this too, um, is they might take the close-up photographs, but they forget to take the overall photographs, so you can't put everything in perspective. Do you run into that? Uh, yes, and I also run into the exact opposite. They take uh, several pictures showing the entire scene, but they don't take the close-ups. So I see both. Uh huh. Yeah. What have you found, Brian? Yeah, I I found the same thing, and that's that's a great point because the limited cases that I've worked um, on those types of things where you do want to take photographs and whatnot, you know, usually. I will call in an expert like Mike to take care of that, but if I've got a client that I've worked with a lot and they say just go out and take a couple photographs, I'll always be sure, and I'm sure Mike is the same way, you take a complete 360 close-up, medium range, and long range to give you an overall picture of it. Mm-hmm. And that's such good information to pass on to the private investigators out there because, you know, we all have, uh, you know, different focus, and sometimes we don't realize when we're doing something that later down the road, you can't reconstruct it, so to speak, to use the term, uh, and you're stuck with what what you've taken. The scene has changed, the roads have changed, and that's all you have. And, and how do you deal with that as a reconstructionist, Michael? Well, I'll take the information that I have provided to me, and then I'll go to the scene and try to duplicate that same information and then take additional information that I think will help. As far as the vehicles, if a vehicle is destroyed, it has already been repaired, and I depend on those pictures to be able to tell me where the damage occurred. That helps me a lot with placing the vehicles on the roadway at impact, even after impact. And many times I'll have to use exemplar vehicles find something that's as close to it as I can, mm-hmm. or I have certain mm-hmm. databases where I can pull specifications off of that, and then I'll try to recreate the damage to the vehicle on a diagram. And, and you do animations, right, when, when you're yes, uh, presenting evidence in court? Uh, yes, I do have a 3D animation program. Uh, it's, uh-huh. uh, what kind of... Pro- uh, I'm and, sorry. And what question. kind of program do you use? What kind of program do you use? It's called Ferro 360. Okay. And I know you have, I believe you have presented that when you've given lectures with PPIAC. Um, is, that, is that true? Have you done that? Yes. And Ryan, did yes. you see his presentation? Oh, yeah. And they're excellent presentation. And it... it 
it really brings to light how much other investigators don't know about certain types of investigations. I, I'm mainly a surveillance investigator, so I think we all need to rely on other professionals when we come up against uh, things like accidents and whatnot. You know, I, I wouldn't hesitate in a minute to refer it to Mike. Mm-hmm. And have you used, worked with accident reconstructionists in the past, Ryan? I've referred uh, cases to Mike, but, you know, I my usual agenda is if I have a case like that, I will just go ahead and hand the case over to Mike. And, and in turn, Mike, you know, if he gets a surveillance investigation, he'll be calling me because that's what we specialize in. And so I just, uh, I turn the cases right over to the other individual rather than try to manage it in a way that I may not mm-hmm. be real comfortable with. I totally agree with that. <laughs> you know, when I hear somebody's trying to, to uh, hire an actor reconstruction to work under their uh, department investigator, it pretty much drives me crazy. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, because Mike will talk about things as he has here on the show that I will know nothing about, and then I have to pass it along to my client, and uh, I'd rather have Mike doing that because uh, he's far yeah. more knowledgeable about this than I am. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, Mike, you have a book. you want to talk about your book a little bit? Sure. Uh, I uh, decided to write this book because uh, even as a trooper, there was many times I would walk in and meet with the district attorney's office, for example, or other attorneys, and they would hand me a stack of information, either the one that I produced for a reconstruction or other reconstructionists did. And they would have this blank, scared look on their face, and they would say, what does this say? <laughs> so, uh-huh. so I first started off developing a course called Accident Investigation for Attorneys, where I would sit down with attorneys, and I would talk to them about what is it, an accident investigation, what is a reconstruction, what is involved in it, and what are some of the things things that you need to look for, and what does this all mean? Well, that mm-hmm. course developed into a book uh, called Accident Investigation for Private Investigators and an Attorney. And in this book, I try to put it in as, as simple language. I don't try to put in a lot of technical terms. And I, I wanted to, to write it so that it was really easy to understand so that if a, a private attorney or a private investigator gets an accident and they get 500 pages of discovery and they look to it and don't know what half of it means, they can go to my book and they can look to the different sections and say, okay, this pile of information is dealing with speed computations. And this explains mm-hmm. what speed computations are and how to, to do some of the simple speed computations because there's some that are extremely complex, but the most of them are actually pretty simple. And the book is called? Accident Investigations for the Private Investigator and Attorneys. Okay. And where can people purchase this book if they want They want to get it? Uh, right now you can purchase them either from our website, which is www.mji.expert, or they can call or email me directly, and we can go ahead and get them a copy. Okay. Cool. So do you want people to uh, contact you to get the book? You want you want to give a number out? Oh, sure. It's 
4-3. Or they can email me at Mike. That's M-I-K-E at Hang on a second. Let's see if repeat the phone number again. 719. 694-3-4-3. 694-3-4-3. 6343 Okay, you cut out for a second. And the email is what? Mike, that's M-I-K-E, at M-J-I dot expert. M-J-I dot expert. Okay, great. Okay. Well, I wish you luck on that book. It sounds like a very valuable educational tool for anybody that is investing in accidents. And I really appreciate Brian Johnson, the president of PPIAC, which is the Professional Private Investigator Association of Colorado. He is the, pre- he is the president. And, uh, Brian, I appreciate you calling in. That's great. I love it. <laughs> well, well, thank you for having me, and, and I hope to see you again soon. And, and good luck with Hit the Hill next week. I wish I could be there. Yeah, thank you. I wish you could be there, too. You're a busy guy. And we're going to have to care. Thank you, We're going to have to get Mike, and, Mike involved in uh, NCISS as well. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, Mike, great information. appreciate it. Um, very, very valuable, particularly the part uh, where you're certified. I think that's incredibly important information for everybody out there to know that they need to get an accredited person to handle these kind of cases. Thank you for being on the show. And for the rest well, of you, it's P.I.C. Yes, thank you. It's the P.I.C. Catherine and Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Ryan and Mike, great investigators from Colorado. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 